Amen. You may be seated. Isn't that a wonderful image? A couple days ago, Linda was working on her laptop at home, and I, I saw just a little bit of that out of the corner of my eye, and it was like, I wonder where that's going to fit in tomorrow. That looks pretty dramatic. Looks pretty great. How good it is to know that we can just absolutely be overwhelmed by every evidence of our Heavenly Father's goodness and grace, and we can share it together. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we're about to open your, your word. The book of Revelation, the last book that you gave to your people. And Father, it humbles us to know that the Apostle Paul died before he ever got to read one word of this book. The Apostle Peter died before he ever got to be blessed by a single concept shared in it. And here we are, holding this book, walking through this book, studying this book, reading aloud this book, that the blessings of it might come into our lives. So we ask today again that this book of Revelation, given by Jesus himself to the Apostle John, might just stir our hearts, expand our minds, until we're so caught up in what's revealed there that our lives are even more given to you. This we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to draw your attention to one of the most hope-generating revelations in this entire book. That's the series we've been in. Hope-generating revelations, discovering hope in the revelations of Scripture, and the Scripture we've been looking at is this book of Revelation. Today, we're going to look at the one I'm saying is probably as hope-generating as any that we could possibly find here. It's hope-generating Revelation 17. That means we've had how many so far? Very good. That's good. If you're not with me to start with, it's kind of hopeless to get you along the way. So, Good to know we're right there. We've had 16. This is number 17, and here's the title of it. The Revelation of Heaven's Final Homecoming. Heaven's Final Homecoming. The last time anyone will be welcomed home to the courts of heaven. It's recorded in our passage today. But before we look into Revelation chapter 14, let me set the stage just a little bit. Let me remind you where we are in the process, uh, sequentially, of what God is doing in the world and where this chapter 14 fits. Revelation chapter 14, in fact, is placed at the midpoint of the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period. So the middle point would be how many years in? Three and a half. How many months would that be? Forty-two. How many days would that be? Ah, oh, come on, they're all in there, 1,260. Forty-two months? Three and a half years? How many hours, minutes? We won't go that far. But at this point, as we turn to Revelation chapter 14, three and a half years, of this seven-year period has gone by. 
42 months, the forces of evil have played havoc with mankind. Demonically inspired leaders have taken control of the earth. The rapture, of course, has already taken place. The church of Jesus Christ has been removed from the earth. That happened at the beginning of the tribulation period. So three and a half years with no church. Three and a half years with demonically inspired leaders just taking control of the whole world. And as we've read through, though, we've discovered something. Though the church has been removed, a witness for Christ and a renewed hope for mankind has emerged. It's emerged as God has raised up 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will speak God's truth into this terribly twisted world. They will carry the gospel everywhere man can be found. They will be an awesome force like this world has never seen. They have been raised up by God himself from the 12 tribes of Israel. And they've been sent forth to fulfill the promise given to Abraham long centuries ago that said through Abraham and his seed, all nations, all peoples on earth would be blessed. And so they, the 144,000 Jewish representatives they will be the ones who will fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave that to his own disciples. We've been inspired by that all of our lives. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus said to his own disciples, this gospel must first be preached in all the world before the end can come. Here we are 2,000 years later and this gospel has not been preached in all the world. There are many, many people in whose language the name Jesus has never been spoken. Millions have come to Christ, but there's much yet to do. Well, during this tribulation period, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, Jewish witnesses, they will get the job done. They will take the gospel to every tribe, every language, every people group under the entire in the entire world. And as a result, untold numbers of human beings will be saved. They will respond to that gospel message. Even with all the evil that's going on, and maybe because so much evil is in the world, there, there, there's a hunger for God himself, for the truth of God's love, for the truth of God's purposes, and millions and millions of the billions on this earth will give their hearts to Christ during the tribulation. Now at the same time that this is all going on, one that John depicts as a beast, a beastly individual or a beastly organization has arisen from mankind and this beast that we looked at last week will make a full-time job of blaspheming God and God's people. This is the anti-Christ himself. He will make war against the saints, we read, and he will conquer them, and great numbers of them will be killed. 
He will challenge the teaching and the preaching of the 144,000. And though this beast would seek to thwart them and denounce their message, he will not be able to harm them in any way because they have the seal of God's protection upon them. So the 144,000 cannot be harmed, cannot be killed, cannot be set aside. But those who give their hearts to Christ, many of them will join the martyr band. When we saw the Lord telling the martyrs under the Father's throne, how long, how long, he said, until your number is completed. Then we will take vengeance for you. And so that number is growing, and it's growing during these three and a half years. But eventually, eventually there'll come an end to both the preaching and the responding and the dying and the testifying and the ministry of the 144,000 will be completed. And it will be fruitful, as I've said. For there will be gathered together before the throne and in front of the Lamb. There's coming a day. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 7. We looked at it quite a while ago. There will be a great multitude. John got the vision of that seven chapters earlier than where we are now. But a great multitude, John says, Revelation 7, 9, that no one could count. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know how many there are. But if you saw a huge crowd and you're standing there and say, uh, nobody could really count them. It's just a vast number. No one could count. But here's the thing. They come from every nation, every tribe, every people identity, and every language. And all of them are wearing white robes. And they're holding palm branches in their hands. It's like a, a redo of Palm Sunday. Standing in heaven, in front of the throne of God, in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, and just waving a, a victory sign as they bring praise to him. They are finally there. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, the question was raised, who are these people? That might be raised by... Uh, by believers who are there, members of the Church of Jesus Christ who have been raptured. Who are these people? I thought when the rapture came, all believers left the earth, and who are these? The angels who possibly don't even get to read the Word of God. I don't know. They might have said, who are these? John himself was wondering, who are these? Where did they come from? And John the Apostle recorded in Revelation chapter 7 the answer that was given to him. And here's the answer that was given by one of the elders who sits around the throne of God. The elder said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. That's who they are. We called them a while ago the second chance saints. The first chance saints are you and me. We get to hear the gospel. We get to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. And when the rapture comes, the entire body of believers at that time is taken out of the world. But the good news is there's a second chance for the world. 
there's still going to be gospel preached. There's still going to be souls saved. There's still going to be those who, to use this phrase, come out of the tribulation. Most of them bearing scars in one way or another. A much tougher time to be a believer than you and I have experienced, especially in this country. These are those who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So see, they they aren't saved by any other means than we are saved. It's by putting their faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, they have been made clean and whole and forgiven, just like you and I have been. So now, having come up to that point, I believe the stage is set and the context established for for what's revealed in today's key scriptures. We're going to be adding a passage and then reviewing another passage and then coming to this, uh, this understanding, this revelation of heaven's final homecoming and how glorious it's going to be. So here's Revelation chapter 14. Here's how we start now, verses 1 to 6. John says, Then I looked... And there before me was the Lamb. Isn't it amazing how many times it's the Lamb that catches John's eye? The Lord Jesus himself, looking like a Lamb who had been slain, or the Lamb that is just communicating such warmth and love and and all the things that, that it meant to John. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him in heaven on Mount Zion... 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Had to be the same group. Very specific numbering. You know, this is the 144,000 we saw in John or Revelation chapter 7. Here they are seven chapters later and they're in heaven. Not on earth. They're in heaven standing with the Lamb. He says, and I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. I was wondering what kind of harps they got. That it sounds like rushing, you know, just a, a mighty stream. I love harp music, but imagine how many harps are playing to get that kind of a, it seems like a stream of music just rushing right by us. And they, the 144,000, sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed at this point from the earth. No longer on the earth. They've finished their job and they're standing before the throne and they are singing. Can you imagine 144,000 voices? It could make those harps sound like nothing. 144,000 voices filled with the the power and the the glory and the majesty of uh, of what God has brought through them, singing a song that's never been sung before, that they will continue to sing, but nobody else will ever be able to learn it. Maybe it's almost like in a language of their own. And heaven is filled with it. 144,000 voices. 
And then John goes on and he says, these, 144,000, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. First fruits of what? The vast, <laughs> the vast multitude that they had brought to Christ. First fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, just so we get the fuller picture, because there's another group right there at that time, I believe this is where the other group comes together with, you have the teachers and you have the taught. You have the ones proclaiming the truth and the ones being redeemed by that truth. So back to Revelation chapter 7, beginning with verse 9. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And now it goes on. And they cried in a loud voice. This could be millions of them. Numerically, they would, uh, they would be way beyond the 144,000. And they together cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you agree with that? Is that where salvation belongs? Is that where salvation comes from? Could you find yourself someday announcing to the world or to anybody who wanted to hear it or that you felt should hear it? Have you ever announced that to your children, to your grandchildren, to your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your friends? Salvation belongs to our God. That's the only way to be saved. He sits on the throne and it belongs to the Lamb who has been sent to provide it for us. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. We agree with that. We agree with what you just said. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See? Someday we'll be in keeping with the liturgy of heaven if we learn that right now and know when to say amen and what we're saying amen to. This is, the, this is the truth, the reality of heaven itself. Then one of the elders said to John, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Remember, these are those who came out of the tribulation. These are those who lived on this earth when it was not pleasant at all to be a believer in Jesus Christ on this earth. These are those who lived on the earth that without taking the mark of the beast on your forehead or right hand, you can't buy or sell. You can't function. You can't have a job. You are, you are desperate. And you probably didn't have a home to call your own. And you wandered and you hoped, maybe even desired, for death to come. And now in heaven, he who sits on the throne will spread his tent, what? His protection over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. 
the sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. This vast multitude would say, we knew all of that. We knew all of that. And the sun would say, and you stood firm for me in the midst of it. The same Holy Spirit that guides us through life will be guiding them through persecution and tribulation and difficulty of all sorts. And when they get to heaven, it will be noted, these are they. And no more. No more. And the last thing says, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Well, that will be heaven for them. And so here we see two awesome groups appearing together before the Father and the Son. What I'm saying today, two groups of human beings experiencing heaven's final homecoming. Among that group is the last soul to be saved. Heaven will welcome no more into the kingdom because the work of salvation is at that point done and and they're welcomed in. It's heaven's final homecoming. And so on the one hand, we have all of those who I like to say have have a TS embossed right on their white robe. And what does the TS stand for? Tribulation saint. They will be known as tribulation saints for all eternity and they will have a resume and a record and and they'll be the, the wonder of many of the heavenly hosts knowing what they experienced and stood firm for Jesus Christ. They've patiently endured. They've remained faithful in the midst of the most demonic environment ever let loose upon this earth. And on the other hand, we have those 144,000 most privileged final witnesses who have faithfully walked this earth as representatives of the Almighty Himself. They're given a song that only they can sing. Now, thinking of both groups, And picturing the moment, I think, of Psalm 126, verse 6. And here's what it says. He that goes forth in weeping, bearing precious seed. Seed being the the truth of God, the word of God. Picture the 144,000 going forth as those who go forth weeping. Even as Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, if only, if only you would respond. Even though there's 144,000 witnesses and they are witnessing daily and speaking of God's word, they will be rejected far more than they will be received. That's always how it is. And a truly godly person finds his heart weeping over the the sinfulness of this world. And they will be viewing demonic things going on in this world. Far worse than anything you and I would grieve over. He that goes forth in weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. Tears turned 
to joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The fruit of the harvest. And so here they are. At the end of the age, in the presence of the Father and the Son and all the heavenly hosts, there in heaven, the sowers and the sheaves. Those who plant and then those who who have been the fruit of the harvest. And so now we come to today's obvious questions. You've probably got, when does this glorious homecoming take place? Where we see the the 144,000, their job completed, standing before the throne, and you see this innumerable multitude from every known configuration of human being possible also standing there just rejoicing in the goodness of God and of their Savior. When does this homecoming take place and how do all these celebrated saints get to heaven? Do they all have to wait to die? One by one they go? I think there's a hint. And so I'm going to just have to say you, I'm jumping to you, I'm jumping on this hint. If you read 25 books on Revelation, there might be one or two who agree with me or see the same hint there. Maybe they all would. I don't know, but look at this. A suggested answer. For when does it take place and how do they all get to heaven? For we see them in heaven. Look on in Revelation 14, beginning with verse 14. John says, I looked, and there before me, so here's a new vision, was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. That's typically a phrase that's used to refer to Jesus himself. Way back in Daniel's day when the boys got thrown into the fiery furnace and the king says, well, we threw three of them in there. Three of them in there. But there's a fourth in there who looks like a son of man, meaning a distinctive that many would say that was Jesus himself taking form to protect them. But here it is. I saw one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head. That's another hint. And he had a sharp sickle in his hand. How many of you have ever used a sickle? How many of you know what one is? It's a, not a big scythe, it's just a, a curvy blade that you hold on and you can, you know, you can just do little jobs with, but uh, it can be a pretty effective. He was holding a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called out in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. That's an interesting phrase. The earth, the entire earth, was harvested. Now, in just a few more verses, we're going to see some other things were taken off of the earth and wound up in the wine press of God's wrath. But first, there's this. And the word harvest. 
You know, never does the Bible use the word harvest in a negative way. Look on the fields, Jesus once said, they are white unto harvest. And again, Jesus said, the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. Never does the Bible use this word harvest to mean something evil or bad is being gathered together. No, this is, this is the result of, of God's work being made ready, and now the fruitful time comes. The harvest is coming. We're bringing in the fruits of God's labor and God's people. This harvest consists, I believe, of all the saints on the earth. The entire earth was harvested. I believe all those saints and the 144,000, of course, they will be brought home, no doubt, by Jesus himself in some kind of a second rapture. They will get from here to there. Not Jesus appearing in the clouds like he did at the first, but here he coming from being on a cloud and the image he harvests the whole earth and brings the harvest home. This will be a necessary action, this harvesting of the earth. This will be a necessary action because God's full wrath upon sin is about to fall. As we read on just a little bit, the bowls of wrath are going to be poured out. This is judgment. This is not God giving anybody a second, third, fourth, fifth chance. This is your day. The moment has come. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And God's wrath begins to be poured out upon this earth. And so I would say to you, like Noah and his family were rescued from the destruction of the flood, and like Lot and his family were rescued from the judgment that fell upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and like the Hebrews in Egypt were protected from the worst of the plagues that came upon the Egyptians. So I believe the 144,000 witnesses and the vast number of tribulation saints will be delivered from the judgment of God that will fall upon the earth. And so as that happens, what a homecoming. What a homecoming there will be for them. What heroes of the faith each of them will be. And the question is, can we learn anything from them? They're a unique group of, of believers. They're a unique group. They come through dire, dire circumstances. The 144,000 have been raised up and anointed and sealed and protected by God and given a task. Is there anything that we can learn from those two groups of God's people that can benefit our lives, that might even give us a hint of some of the things that really please God. See, we're going to get to heaven before they will. We're going to go through heaven's gates before they are harvested and brought into heaven. But here's the amazing thing. Thanks to this book of Revelation, we can learn from those who haven't even arrived on the scene yet. 
Usually in the Bible, you're looking back at people who are long dead. And, and the Bible says everything in the past is for our example, that we can learn from it. Don't make the same mistakes. Follow the same procedures that God has blessed. But here we're looking forward to people who maybe aren't even born yet. Certainly haven't entered into any of these activity yet. And, and we can learn from them because their stories being told ahead of time rather than after the fact. So the question is, can we learn from them? Is it possible that we can be, we can be like they are going to be? Can they still serve as examples for us? Well, as I read through these passages with that kind of a perspective, four things jumped out at me. I'd like you to consider with me this morning, we're just going to go through these quickly because they're pretty obvious, four key characteristics of their lives. Some of these come from the 144,000 and what's revealed about them. Some of them come from the, uh, the host of born-again saints, tribulation saints, and one they share in common. So here we go. But take this as our perspective today. These are things that always please God. They please the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Abba, Jesus, Numa. These are things that bring about the admiration of the heavenly hosts. These are things, could I put it this way, that we would certainly want on our own spiritual resume. I can say, yeah, that's, that's true of me too. That's true of me too. So here we go, four things quickly. Number one, they kept themselves pure. No defilement. That's chapter 14, verse 4. This refers to the 144,000. They kept themselves pure. They did not defile themselves with women. Now, let me just give you, make a reference here. If the Bible never refers to harvest in a negative way, the Bible never refers to defilement of something that God honors. This does not necessarily mean that all 144,000 of these people were not married. The Bible does not consider a man to have defiled himself if he gets married. In fact, the Bible says marriage is honorable and it's holy and it's part of God's plan. So the fact that these have never defiled themselves with women does not necessarily mean they never entered into an intimate marriage, God-honoring relationship with a woman. But they never defiled themselves with women. They've kept themselves pure. Spiritually pure, no entanglement with false doctrine, and the world of that day is going to be filled with every kind of false doctrine there is. They never got entangled with that. Spiritually pure, morally pure, no compromise in their behavior. There are married men who are still defiling themselves with women who are not their wives, who tune into pornography and defile themselves with what is shown there that women are part of. There are those who are not married who defile themselves with women, having relationships that the Bible says are absolutely wrong. 
these men. God notes they kept themselves pure. Purity is a big deal to God. And it's a big deal for women as well as for men. So spiritually pure, no entanglement with false doctrine, morally pure, no compromise behaviorally, ethically pure, I would say, no deception or misrepresentation in life. It says there's no lying. They are blameless. They're honest and true. People of integrity. Keep yourself. We want to keep ourselves pure in every possible way. It's something that brings great honor and brings pleasure to our Heavenly Father. Resolve. Because I can hear somebody thinking out there, I can think this way myself. What, what if I've already blown it? What if I'm not pure? What if my mind is filled with junk? What if I've believed at times things that I know now the Bible says are not true? What if I've done things the Bible says are not appropriate? What if I have lied? What if I have cheated? Is, is once you're impure, is that just the end of the game? You'll never be identified by God as being a pure woman or a pure man ever again. That's not true, is it? That's not true. Number one, when an unpure person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they're made new. And another thing is when someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is convicted by the Holy Spirit of something that is not right and they repent of it, they are cleansed. Anybody on earth seeking to live a pure life can consider this to be day one. Day one. I'm never going to watch that garbage again. I'm never going to be involved in a relationship that is not honoring to God again. I'm never going to conduct my life in such a way that, that people don't know if I'm telling them the truth or if I'm just trying to, you know, spin something on them. I want to be known as a pure person, spiritually, morally, ethically. And today is my... Repurification day. It's day one. And by God's grace, we'll walk further down the path from this day. The Holy Spirit loves to do that for any one of us to just repurify our minds, to repurify our walk, to repurify our, our whole perspective on life and say it's God's way from here on. Day one is an exciting day. And then it leads to two and three and four. They kept themselves pure. Number two, we find they identified themselves with the Almighty. This also relates to the 144,000. How were they identified with the Almighty? Did you pick it up as we read through? In contrast, how are the people on earth at this time identified with the beast, even with the Antichrist? What's the identity? The mark of the beast. Anyone on their forehead, it's obvious you have thrown in your lot with him or that system of things. The 144,000, where's their identity? See, same thing. In their forehead, they have the name of the Father and the Son of the Lamb. 
They are identified and everywhere they go, they are, they are announcing before they say any words. We belong to God. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I can't really stamp that right on our forehead, though these days people put tattoos in various places trying to communicate a witness, and maybe you could do that. But you better live up to it then, right? But see, identified. God is pleased when his people are not afraid to identify with him. You might be in a group where you're the only one. And people are discussing things and they're forming ideas and they're sharing how life ought to be. And you're the only one in the room that holds an alternate view. And it's not an alternate political view. It's an alternate view of truth. And you stand up and say, well, I don't think that way. I believe there's a God that we all will answer to someday. Well, that's a statement of identity. You might be the only one who, or you might encourage somebody else. Well, I, I believe that. I believe that. But there are opportunities every day, usually, every week, every period of time as we float through where we can identify ourselves with Christ, identify ourselves with this book, identify ourselves with a, with a body of believers in this world. Say, well, I go to church. I go to church every week. I don't know how anybody who isn't part of a, a family of faith even gets through stuff. These people identified themselves with the Almighty. And then number three, they trusted in the blood of Christ. Now this had to be the tribulation saints. How did they wash themselves clean? How did they get those beautiful glowing white robes that they wore? It says they wash their robes to begin with. Their robes, speaking of their life, were, were dirty. Dirtied with sin. Dirtied with fallenness. Dirtied with rebellion. And yet they came to Jesus Christ and the process of accepting his death on Calvary, his shed blood for them, they became glowing white. They trusted in the work of Jesus Christ for their salvation. God loves to see that done. That's, that's the greatest thing we can do, really, to trust in Christ completely. No doubts, no worries, no, well, I'm trying to be the best I can or whatever. No, did Jesus accomplish enough on the cross to save you forever? Did Jesus then accomplish by sending his Holy Spirit enough to guide you and keep you forever? See, trust him. Trust him. And then the fourth thing, they invested themselves in worship. Well, that's both groups. It's almost like they had a sing-off in heaven. Maybe they took turns. It says, they, the tribulation saints, cry down in that loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they're they're chanting almost, cheering that, saying that, all of them together. Heaven had to be kind of echoing with, uh, with that worshipful statement. And then in chapter 14, verse 3, it says, And they, this is the 144,000, they sang a new song before the throne. Heaven's doors are always opened to worshipers. 
of all the things we can be, of all the things we want on our resume, right at the top, I would want listed, Mark Michaels is a worshiper of God. And everything else just kind of falls in underneath that. Wants to know the truth of God so his worship is enhanced. Wants to submit to God because to worship God means that you've actually acknowledged his leadership. He reigns over us and in us. True worshipers are always warmly welcomed in heaven. True worshipers are always pleasing to God on earth. Just take a moment right now. Close your eyes, because it helps if you do. Close your eyes and listen to me say that again. True worshipers are always pleasing to God on earth. And take a moment and just feel his pleasure. Feel his pleasure. Not his evaluation of the last three months of your life, but his evaluation of you this very moment in this place, what we've done this morning. You've shown yourself to be a worshiper of God, and as it's been from your heart, just feel his pleasure and just know on that basis alone your heavenly father is going to want you with him forever you are a worshiper of God well now for our final thought this morning I couldn't resist as I was thinking of this message and just all the what we're picturing there, I couldn't resist the testimony of an old gospel song that I sang often when I was growing up. And uh, the first part comes, Peggy, have you heard of this one? Your dad used to sing this one. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. You and I will not be part of that final welcome home. We will be there ahead of time. We will be part of the group welcoming them and say, here they come. Here they come. The Lord Jesus is just about to, to harvest the earth with that sharp sickle of his, and they're going to come in here by the millions. Get ready. There's never been anyone on earth like the 144,000. They will be designated special servants of God forever, and they're coming. Get ready for those tribulation saints, man. They had to put up with things you and I never dreamed of, but they put up with them by the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and here they come. Here they come. We'll get to welcome them, but there's also a day ahead of them that will not be the final welcome, the homecoming, but each one of us will get one as we arrive. Peter called it a rich welcome into the kingdom. So just, just bask in that. Just think about that. And realize that everything going on in this world is just temporary. But everything going on in this world in our life can have significance for the life to come. Live in such a way that your Heavenly Father can just with a big smile, say, welcome home. Welcome home. You have pleased me while you are on earth, and, and I just will relish our fellowship for all eternity. Heavenly Father, this is, I know your heart. 
The next couple of weeks, we're going to see the, the side of you that is shown when grace has been exhausted. Thank you that we do not fear the judgment of God. Thank you that in Jesus Christ there is no longer any condemnation. But Father, there's condemnation coming. I pray today. It's a privilege for us to pray today for those who are not upon this earth yet. But Father, I pray for the power and the ministry and the witness of the 144,000. I pray for every one of those tribulation saints, some of them living in places where they never even heard the name of Jesus. They didn't even know there was a rapture that they could anticipate. They never even knew there was a salvation that they could be accepting. But when they heard the gospel, they accepted it. And I pray that that they might stand as firm as your word says they will, that they would be protected from doubt and from pain and from fear, and that they might have filling their mind the thoughts of a homecoming that, that goes beyond anything that they could imagine. Father, for us as well, may we live in such a way that when we receive the call to come up here, that we will be ready in every way. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.